You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Japan's first ruler was a woman? Well, not according to the royal family. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Today is our first episode for Women's History Month. Woo! And we are heading, or rather, you are heading, because I'm already here to Japan. You know, Japanese history is my favorite, and we've got an empress, empress, <laughs> we've got an empress baddie on our hands, a mythical shaman empress to be exact, because today we are talking about the legendary Queen Himiko. We're about to get real, real into Japanese history, friends, so snuggle in, get your crown, and let's get to it. Japan, that archipelago that has captured people's curiosity since people had curiosity to be captured. I have been a Japanese history nerd since I was in university, but my love for Japan came at the age of like four or so when my mom let me pick out a movie at the library. It was a VHS. I know, right? I'm dating myself a little bit. A VHS of my neighbor Totoro, the gorgeous Ghibli film about a giant bear raccoon thing that only shows itself to children, grows trees, and lives in the woods and may or may not be a demon of death, depending on what fanfics you read <laughs> and different fan theories. There's also a cat bus and a bunch of little soot sprites involved, and it's just a magical film, and you need to watch it. It's so nostalgic. So once I found out what country this magical movie came from, I was immediately hooked. So whenever we do episodes about Japanese history, little kid TK is just jumping for joy. Unfortunately, there is no magical raccoon bear in our story today, but we do have a magical shaman woman, which, you know, I think that might be better. But before we meet our shaman queen, let us hop into our time machine. That rhymes. And let's take a look at Japan in the late 100 CEs. So like 1,851 years and two months-ish ago from the time I am recording this podcast. What was going on in Japan? Was it even Japan? Great question, friend. Japan would not be Japan for some time. 
Instead, the country we now know as Japan was a collection of about 100 individual countries that were almost all run by separate people. They all had their own religion, culture, food, practices, music, all that jazz, but not a single one of them was courteous enough to create a writing system to write all of their stuff down. It's simply rude. So most of that history is just gone. Not not completely gone. We do have access to like a ton of archaeological stuff, which fun fact, Japan has one of the highest budgets in the world for archaeology. I had no idea. Year round, there's like an average of 2,000 dig sites that happen, which is so freaking cool. So the information that we know about the people living during this time period, the late Yayoi, early Kofun period, is pretty much from archaeology sources and things that China and Korea wrote. Today, we will be focusing only on the things that ancient China wrote about Japan. And let me tell you, China is salty AF. The largest source of information on the Yayoi slash Kofun people comes from a group of Chinese texts called the History of the Kingdom of Wei, or the Wei Shi, which was written in 297 CE. China during this time was split into five or six different kingdoms, and the kingdom of Wei was one of them. In this book, the Yayoi Kofun people were referred to as the people of Wa, and the country itself was Wa, the country of Wa. Which sounds like a a great name. It's a fine name, the people of Wa. Wonderful. But in archaic Chinese, (laughs) Wa basically meant dwarf. Short people. So the people of Wei were calling Japan the land of the short people. (laughs) Essentially, Japan was like munchkin land in China's eyes. (laughs) Which is so funny because it's it's now still used that 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 kanji wa is still used in a lot of Japanese words today. Like the kanji it The meaning has obviously changed. It doesn't mean short people anymore. It just means Japan. But the origin comes from wa meaning short in archaic Chinese. And I love it. I love historical burns. It's hilarious. And to just add insult to injury, the particular section of this book that talks about the land of wa is titled Accounts of the Eastern Barbarians. Damn, China. But thanks to this very salty ancient slam book, we've got some top-notch primary resources. So yay for historical shade. So during this Yayoi Kofun transitional period, we know that agriculture, architecture, nope, not architecture, we know that agriculture had become a huge thing. People were just growing stuff all over the place because Japan is fertile AF since it's like a volcanic thing. I'm not a farmer. I don't know. The soil is really nice here. (laughs) And when the food source is bopping, culture comes a-knockin'. Religion was a huge part of the Yayoi Kofun culture. In fact, the person who was the closest to the gods was usually the person in power. And there was no one closer to the gods, and most importantly, to the goddesses, 
as Queen Himiko. The first Japanese person ever documented, ever, in any history document, was Queen Himiko. How freaking cool is that? In that way history book we were talking about earlier, the Chinese are pretty sassy when it comes to the Yayoi Kofun people. However, they really liked Himiko. The extremely limited information that we have about her all comes from the Wei history book. And the people of Wei freaking loved her. And let me tell you why. Japan, before it became Japan, was made up of a bunch of countries, right? Well, about 30 of them were grouped into one kingdom called Yamatai. There was a ton of battling between these 30 countries until finally, in 190 CE, the people were like, look, okay, we can't keep doing this. We've had enough. We're all going to die. War sucks. So, like, let's just elect someone and they can be the leader of all of us. Great idea, right? And everyone's like, yes, cool. Great idea. We love it. We're super down. So an election was held and the winner was Himiko. Himiko was also known as Pimiko or Pimiku, and she was born somewhere around 170. And she may have had a brother, we, we don't really know. Her name in archaic Japanese means sun child or sun daughter. And it's probably a little nod to her divine familial connection with Amaterasu, the Shinto sun goddess. But DK, why did Himiko win? Fabulous question, my delicious little donut. There are a few reasons why, according to historians. Number one, she was a woman, and Japan, at the time, was a matriarchal society. She was super-duper spiritual, and, like, mega-spiritual, actually. She practiced a very powerful kind of magic called onido. Onido practitioners were thought to have direct contact and power over ghosts and or demons. Some sources said demons, others said ghosts, and others said both. It just really depends on the translations that the sources use. But that was a, a big deal because demons and or ghosts were very powerful and very dangerous if crossed. Women were also considered to be the most spiritually connected. And in this period, that meant they were the most politically collect collected. Nope, <laughs> politically connected as well. So it was only natural that a super powerful shaman would become the leader of this new country. And she led the shit out of Yamatai. There was peace and prosperity during her entire reign. Archaeologists can tell from the bones and artifacts left behind that the people were well fed and didn't really work too hard. So basically, she maintained peace like a freaking boss for 50 to 60 years. Everybody ate. They got all fat and sassy. It was wonderful. And she didn't just maintain peace and protect her people. She was also an international relations genius. So let's go back to the spicy Chinese history book discussing the ancient Japanese. Himiko was all about diplomacy, even with the salty country of Wei. In the Wei history book, there are four accounts of Himiko sending envoys to China to give them gifts and enslaved people 
to be like, hey, I know there are a ton of countries over here, but like mine is the best and the biggest. Like, look how wealthy I am. I'm sending you actual alive people and all of this other cool stuff. My country is so rich. You love us. And the country of Wei was like, "Uh, yeah, this is great. We thought you guys were just a bunch of short barbarians. That's literally why we call you short barbarians. (laughs) But turns out, Miss Himiko, you are rad AF, so we're going to give you like a little title, a little title for you. We're going to call you the Queen of Wa, friendly to Wei. And then they sent back a super fun golden seal and over 100 ceremonial bronze mirrors, which doesn't sound like a big deal. Like, ooh, mirrors. There's like a whole bunch of mirrors in my house right now. But wait, wait, friend, wait. Mirrors were a huge deal at the time. People just didn't have mirrors. Peeps were walking around life not knowing what they looked like because it was really hard to make mirrors and to get bronze, forget about it. Forget about it. It was super de duper de rare. For way to send Himiko 100 mirrors, unheard of, bananas. It meant they really, really, really liked her. And they gave her that fancy title, so it was great. When Himiko wasn't killing the political game, she was off doing her shaman thing, being the spiritual leader of her country. If I haven't made it clear by now, she was mega spiritual. So spiritual, in fact, that she kept herself secluded from all men except for one. It's unclear if this man was just her servant or her lover or some people even think that it was her brother because nothing was really written down about this guy. We don't really know about him himself, but we do know that this man was the go-between for the queen and the outside world. The only people that saw her were her 99, nope, not 99, 999 all-women servants. And that's the full extent of her life that we know about. She was a political and spiritual baddie and made her country peaceful AF. In 248 CE, Himiko would pass away from old age, but her people sent her off with a freaking bang. The Way History Book also details her death, saying a great mound was raised, more than 100 paces in diameter, and 100 of her attendants enthusiastically followed her to the grave. I don't know about that last part. I don't really know if they were enthusiastically following her or if they were made to follow her, but regardless, she got a big old burial mound and a bunch of people came with her into the barrel mound, and apparently they put a bunch of other cool stuff inside of there as well, along with her mirrors. Mm. This burial mound was probably the first kofun, which is the signature feature of the kofun period. I'll put a picture up on Instagram of what these kofuns look like, but basically a kofun is a burial mound that varies in size depending on the importance of the person. And now they're like overgrown. They've got grass and bushes and sometimes trees on them. And they just look like big old hills. And because Himiko was a really important person, hers was really, 
really freaking big. But here's the thing. We don't know where it is. We don't even know where the kingdom of Yamatai is. Because although the ancient Chinese were kind enough to write down some sick burns and how many mirrors they gave Himiko, they didn't bother to write down the location of the Frickafrackin' country. And this is how doubt and controversy snuck into Himiko's story. After hearing Himiko's story, you would think that she would be super famous now. And she is, but her story was almost lost, or rather hidden, from the people. Well, why, TK? Great question, my sweet summer child. Sexism is why. The patriarchy is why. The Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki are Japan's oldest texts. The first writings about Japan by Japanese people. They contain a mix of actual history and mythology, and not once do they mention Himiko. Not a once. They also do not mention her kingdom, Yamatai. We don't really know why they didn't include her. Did they forget? Did they not know about her? Did they intentionally leave her out? We really can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt why she was not included in the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki. But we can make some really, really good educated guesses. There are two schools of thought on this. One side says she didn't exist at all. Japan's first ruler couldn't have been a woman. Ancient China and Korea got it wrong and messed up. They also think she's fake because we haven't officially found her giant Kofun burial mound yet. The other side thinks that Japanese scholars just didn't know about her. It was unintentional. But here's why this is a bunch of straight-up balagna, baloney, pulling out the second-grade swear words now because I... I'm very mad. First of all, both the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki reference and use parts of the book that Himiko was in. That history of Wei book? Did the Japanese scholars just skip over those parts? I think not. We can also make a really good educated guess that it wasn't an accident because when these books were written in the 8th century, Japan was like, Hey, China's super powerful. Let's be like them and get them to like us. So they adopted Chinese Confucian and Buddhist ideology, which meant women's positions in society were abysmal. And they simply could not have Japan's first recorded ruler be a woman. What would China think if they found out about Himiko, which they They already knew about her. They already knew about her, guys. Just put her in the book. Just put her in the freaking book. So years passed, like a few hundred years, when finally in the Edo period in the late 1600s, two dudes started one of the most heated historical debates ever. Philosopher and statesman Arai Hakuseki and scholar Motori 
Norinaga rediscovered the Chinese texts and the existence of Himiko. And people are still going hard on this debate today. So let me tell you what the debate was. Hakuseki was like, how can we trust the old Japanese histories when they don't even include Himiko in the first place? I'm going to believe the Chinese text. Therefore, Himiko's Kofun burial mound and her kingdom have to be real and they have to be in the heart of Japan, the Kyoto, Osaka, Nara area. And I'll put a map up on Instagram so that you can see where that area is. On the other side, however, Norinaga was like, Hakuseki, you fool. I would never trust the Chinese documents. Let's, let's trust what our countrymen have said. Obviously, whether Himiko was real or not, someone tricked the Chinese into thinking Yamatai was the big important country when really it wasn't that important or powerful at all because it was led by a woman if it was led by a woman. So... We, we can't have that now. And unfortunately, Norinaga's view became dominant through the following decades, from the Meiji area on into the end of World War II. This time was a super-duper nationalistic time, meaning anything that went against Japan's image or power or image of the emperor or criticized Japan in any way was totally rejected. The Nihon Shiki and the Kojiki were the foundation of Japan's imperial authority. In these books, it said that the Japanese emperor got it, his power, his, make that clear, his power from the goddess, the sun goddess, Amaterasu. So anything that deviated from that belief was considered to be against Japan and against the emperor, which meant being against a god. And I'm going to read a quote from a really great Tofugu article on Himiko. It's, it's super good. Quote, Questions about Himiko's kingdom became tangled with nationalist imperialist politics, with the emperor enshrined as divine. Rejecting the ancient Japanese histories could be viewed as an attack on the imperial system in general, and some historians who refused to conform lost everything at the hands of censorship laws. End quote. Until the 1940s, the Japanese emperors were thought to be divine, like I said, and a direct descendant of the sun goddess Amaterasu. And the royal family does its darndest to only follow and recognize the patriarch, the patriarch, the, the paternal lineage as the only legitimate royal slash holy bloodline. So to have a woman as the first ruler of Japan would just be like, Wah! spitting in the face of everything they stood for and continue to stand for. There is just so much suppression, even now when it comes to recognizing the legitimate empresses that have ruled through Japanese history. It's bananas. And to this day, a woman cannot be the next person in the line of secession. There was like a whole big thing because the current emperor 
didn't have any sons, and his brother, yeah, his younger brother, also didn't have an, any children at all. So the government was trying to decide whether or not one of the current emperor's daughters could be the next in line. But then the emperor's younger brother had a son. And so the government was like, yeah, we don't need to make this decision anyways. There's a male heir now, so we're good to go, which it was a whole thing here in Japan. It was a big deal. It was very sad. I feel very sad for the emperor's oldest daughter because now she's not even a part of the royal family because women in the royal family, when they get married, become not royal anymore. It's a very interesting history. The royal family in Japan is, it's banana sandwich. Maybe we'll do an episode on that one day. <laughs> but I digress. There was one professor who refused to give in to the academic censorship. That professor was Naka Michio, who from 1878 until the day he died, continually criticized the ancient Japanese histories and disproved Norinaka's claims about Yamatai. He would never see the impact that he had on history, but after his death and the Second World War, archaeologists and historians started literally digging into the ground and digging through ancient texts to finally settle the Himiko debate. Between 1955 and 1964, a series of archaeological discoveries reignited the debate about the location of Yamatai and the existence of Himiko. After these discoveries were televised, there was a Yamatai bomb that went off in the 1960s through into the early 1970s. It became a national obsession to debate whether Kyushu or the Osaka-Kyoto-Nara region was the location of the Yamatai kingdom, and everyone wanted to claim Himiko as being from their prefecture. And now, according to a recent survey by the Ministry of Education and Sciences, 99% of Japanese school children can recognize and identify Himiko. In 2009, a group of Japanese archaeologists claimed that they had identified Himiko's tomb as the Hashihaka Kofun in Sakurai City near Nara. They did all of the science things. They did radiocarbon dating of artifacts that were discovered on the outskirts of the Kofun and found that they did date between 240 and 260 AD. The exact time Himiko was meant to have died. There were bronze mirrors there, in fact. And it was looking like the mystery would finally come to an end. How could it be any more perfect? But life does not work out that way sometimes. When the imperial household got wind of these discoveries, they did something quite questionable, in my opinion. The imperial household agency designated Hashihaka, a royal tomb, and thereby forbidding further excavation or experimentation. By royal decree, archaeologists are no longer allowed near the site, and until or if they ever lift the restrictions, we will never know anything more about Japan's first ruler, the shaman queen Himiko.
We have come to our final thought, friend, and I know you're probably just as gutted as I am about the ending. It's just not fair that the royal family isn't letting their own people discover more about their own history. But I will digress and share with you our final thought for today. I really wanted to tell you this, but it just didn't fit anywhere in the episode. So after Himiko's death, some dude was like, I'm going to be in charge. And after 60 years of peace and prosperity under Himiko, the kingdom fell into just war, disorder, and chaos. They were, the people were not down with this guy being the ruler and they would not stop fighting until another woman actually a young girl was put in charge and I'm just going to read a translated passage straight from the history of way book upon her death the male ruler who took her place did not last long and the chiefdoms fell into disunity and fighting assassination and murder followed more than 1,000 were thus slain until Io a 13 year old girl related to Himiko, was placed on the throne. Then, peace was restored, and the fighting ended. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, friend. It's such a good one uh, to start off Women's History Month with. And this is a very special episode today. I actually re-recorded this ending because one of my best friend's baby was born today this episode was supposed to go out yesterday but then she went into labor yesterday and I could not focus on the upload but the baby is here she is safe everybody is good and healthy and fine and uh, just so happy and I know she is gonna become just as strong as her mama so I'd like to dedicate this episode to my new favorite tiny human on the planet. I already love her so much. Ooh, I'm so happy. So thank you once again for joining my dear friend. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate on the Patreon or or <laughs> or support the Books and Beverage Fund on Good Pods. If that's not your thing, then that's okay. You can leave a rating or review of the podcast, which would be greatly appreciated because they literally make my day and they help other people find For the Love of History. Take good care of yourself this week. Take a break if you need to. Do something that makes you happy. Give yourself a big hug from me. Drink your freak of freaking water. And I will see you next week when we talk about a Ukrainian woman who changed the world. Okay, bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>